I've, I've known him my entire life. Jesus has been a name I've known since the day I was born. And I consider myself blessed, and I don't use blessed in a flippant way, but blessed that I was born into a family with two parents who had a love for Jesus, and that I witnessed my entire childhood trying to cultivate a deeper love for Christ. Both my mom and dad grew up in what was probably more of legalistic, uh, in legalistic churches. So I saw them wrestle with what it meant to cultivate a deep love for God and to know they were loved by God. I've known Jesus since the day I was born. Uh, the first 14 years of my life, I was drawn to Jesus as what I would just call like an historical miracle worker and the entrance into heaven. And what I mean is, I was just, I was, as a child, I remember being just amazed by the stories of Jesus performing miracles, walking on the water, calming the storms, healing people. And though I'm sure there was a time as a child it felt like magic, I grew to love and appreciate how Jesus had so much compassion on people. And I knew my entire life, I, I knew Jesus was the entrance into heaven. I kind of a, had a feel for heaven and hell. I knew I didn't want to go to hell. I knew if the other option was heaven, I wanted to be there, and Jesus was the entrance there. For the first 14 years of my life, I knew these things. I didn't have much depth in my life. There wasn't a lot of substance to my spiritual life. I don't even know if there was much desire. Around the age of 15, that began to change. And part of it changed, and how I thought about Jesus changed, because in my youth group, and we, I grew up with a larger youth group, there were a few girls my age, I thought they looked good, I thought they were hot. And what I heard from them, this wasn't just like word on the street, they were very public that they would only date boys who either loved Jesus or loved Jesus and, and had a pursuit for the spiritual life. So all of a sudden, I got real spiritual, quick. And what may have felt like hypocrisy a little bit, like I was just acting like I liked Jesus, it put me in the Bible, and it put me in spaces where I heard about Jesus and came to know him in deeper ways. There is about a two-year journey for me from the age of 14 to 16, where through some conviction and some circumstances and just by the grace of God, that God began to teach me, Jesus did not only desire to be the Savior of my life, but the Lord of my life. A couple of years after that, I began to learn how Jesus was both the Lord of my life and a friend in my life. A few years after that, I began to discover and, to, and to my eyes were open to see how Jesus is a restorer of the world. That Jesus didn't only desire to save me and to have a relationship with me, but to use his people to help people all around the world know who Jesus is. Through seasons of my life, it's like Jesus uh, reveals and unpacks a little bit more of his character. And it's like Jesus doesn't just drop it on me overnight. There wasn't a moment in my life where like every characteristic of Christ was made plain for me. It was in moments and times in my life when I seek God and I make room for more of God, I discover more about Jesus. I've been married to Casey now over half my life. Over 21 years we have been married. And there are some things about her that I've known since the moment we started dating. I've known her love for snicker bars, her love for taking naps, her love for laughter, and her love for Hallmark, especially when she gets to cuddle up to this dude while watching Hallmark, all right? There, there are some things I haven't known about her until the last couple of years, maybe because I wasn't paying attention. Her love for goat cheese, feta cheese, her love for holding hands while taking walks holding my hand while taking a walk. Uh, uh, 
There are some things I've learned about her just the last couple of years. It was like, I'm sure she said these things. I just didn't catch them. And when it comes to growth and maturity in, a, in the Christian life and knowing Jesus, like sometimes we got to create some space and have a desire and take a step to, in order for Jesus to reveal a little bit more of who Jesus is and who Jesus desires to be in our lives. Maybe you've only known, maybe you've known Jesus all your life like me. Maybe you didn't know Jesus until the age of 18 or 30 or 50 or maybe 70. I don't know if you've known Christ your whole life or just some of your life, but I know this, God has known you. Jesus has known you your entire life. He has known you. He has pursued you in times when you did not even know you were pursuable. He has loved you even when you may have felt unlovable. He has been at work in your life even when you have not been able to see it. Jesus is creator, deliverer, chain breaker, miracle worker, death destroyer, destroyer, friend and servant. What is keeping you from saying yes to this man? He is judge and lawyer, mediator and substitute, grace dispenser, mercy giver, sin conqueror, pursuer, forgiver, a master at giving second chances. He is never bored, always working, unafraid to step into your darkest moments and not afraid to hold your doubts what's keeping you from saying yes to this man. He may not always fix your problems, but he does know how to handle your problems. He is demanding yet gentle. He expects a lot yet understands stages of growth and transformation. He is not afraid to confront, challenge, and convict, yet is always driven by a deep love what is keeping you from saying yes to this man. He loves the rich and asks the rich to be rich toward God. He loves the poor and never calls them a victim, but gives them dignity and integrity. What is keeping all of us from saying yes to this man? His grace can get lower than your lowest low. Your tears are held in his hand. Your worst moments do not push him away. If anything, they draw him even closer. What is it that is keeping you from saying yes to him? He died in your place rose so you can rise, rise to. He is life now, and he is life forevermore. In Colossians chapter 1, it says this. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In Hebrews chapter 1, the first three verses, it says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through him also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, since he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Happy New Year to you. It's good to see all of you in person. Grateful for all of you joining us online today. And I hope and I pray that this will be a year that we will not hold back, that we will pursue deeper faith, to live with greater courage,
to believe that this could be and this is the year of God's favor. That we will not coast, but that we will swim the race, run the race, walk the race, crawl the race, if that's what it takes. That we'll be on this race with Christ. I want to begin today, and I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. It's known as the Great Commission. So this is how the Gospel of Matthew ends. In Matthew chapter 28, and I'm, I, I'm trying to hold all of this on the screen, so it, it may be a little small, but in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, it says this, Then Jesus came to them, and Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And I want to keep that on the screen. I want to point out just a few things for you uh, here. I want you to, if, you're, if you, I don't know if you, how you take notes in your Bible, if you highlight things, circle things, or maybe you take notes and you don't write in your Bible, you take notes on a piece of paper. I want you to notice all authority has been given to Jesus. That through Jesus's obedience in life and all the way to the cross and death, God gives Jesus all authority, which meant in that moment, as Jesus is given all authority, Jesus could do with that authority whatever he wanted to do with it. It's his authority. And what, she, what Jesus chose to do with his authority is to delegate, to raise up what he would call, or what came to be called as just a local church of people who were commissioned on mission. So even though people from the beginning of time have done things to let God down and have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God, it's like God in his goodness and uh, his providence keeps asking people to partner with God to fulfill his purposes. So with all the authority Jesus has been given, he chooses to delegate it, to give it. We're going to talk more about this here in just a few weeks. I want you to notice the word go. And we're going to look at this in a few weeks. This word go shows up multiple times in the Gospel of Matthew, but as Jesus is commissioning people, his commission is to go. His, his commission is not to go build the best buildings and to have the best programs and to, and to write a handbook on what it means to be a member of whatever that place is that has the programs in the nice buildings and then put up billboards to invite people to come to you. The mission is that wherever the church gathers, we go from that place to be the light of the world, not just invite people into a space, hoping they come so they can learn about the light. The mission of the church from the very beginning is that we are people who are called to move and to go into the world. And if you highlight things in your Bible or circle things, I want you to circle make disciples. This is the direct object of the Great Commission. Quick little English lesson for so, those of us who maybe not, maybe we haven't been in English class for a while, but the direct object is whatever statement is made, everything is pointing to it. So in the Great Commission, everything is pointing to disciple making, making disciples. So the direct object isn't that we baptize, as important as baptism is, it's not that we teach, as important as teaching is, it's make disciples. We go to make disciples, we baptize to make disciples, we teach to make disciples. Everything is about making a disciple. And as Jesus says this, the way Jesus thought about discipleship, and as you look at the life of Jesus, the way Jesus discipled people is, Jesus didn't just give them a handbook to study, Jesus offered himself is the one they need to become like. So discipleship at its best is not reading a book on it or reading a handbook to understand all the do's and don'ts. It is, it's relational. It's pursuing Jesus. 
Jesus thought so much of the relationship between God and humanity. Jesus thinks he is worthy of being followed, not just studied. So we look at Jesus. We see how Jesus interacts with people, and then we become like him. This is discipleship at its best. So in the year 2024, uh, we're going to have a sermon series. It's going to be broken up into seven different series. But the overarching thing of 2024 is engaging the Gospels backward. Now, with that said, we're not going to begin with like the last word of the Gospel and then hope that we can just piece together as we read word for word backward. But here's what we're going to do this year. The first six weeks of the year, we're going to focus on how the Gospels end. All the Gospels end differently. We're gonna, we just looked at Matthew. It ends with a great commission. Mark has two different endings. has a short ending, a long ending. Luke ends with uh, Jesus teaching on the power of the Holy Spirit. John ends with redemption and renewal as, as Jesus is calling followers who have let him down to, like, hey, you are still a part of the story. Like, I'm still calling you. The gospel's end differently. So the first six weeks of the year, we're going to focus on purpose and mission and worth and who we are as we live out this life. Then we're going to have seven weeks where we're going to focus on the cross. It's going to lead up to Easter. Then we're going to have four weeks to focus on the resurrection. And then we're going to have 13 weeks in May all the way through the end of July where we're going to look at the character of Christ. We're just going to look on the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus the teacher. Jesus the storyteller. Jesus the friend. Jesus the servant. 13 weeks of the character of Jesus. In the month of August through Labor Day, we're going to have five weeks where we're going to look at prayer. Jesus in prayer. In Luke chapter 11 verse 1, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, Lord, teach us to pray. These are people who've been praying every day their entire life. Yet there was something about the way Jesus prayed. They wanted in on that kind of prayer life. This fall, September, all the way to Thanksgiving, we're going to study the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And then we'll have four weeks of Advent, a season of incarnation and re-engagement with the world. And then December 29th is going to be a Sunday. It's going to be like, so what? So we've spent 51 weeks with Jesus. What do we do with all this? So I've been working on this sermon series for two years for multiple reasons. One, I just thought it would be great for us to spend a year doing nothing but studying Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to look at Jesus, study Jesus, become more faithful disciples of Jesus. What better year for you to invite friends to come to church? And tell them, hey, the content this year, we're just, we're, seriously, we're a church. We're helping people see Jesus, and that's what we're doing this year. We are studying Matthew through John so that we can come to know Jesus better. I've also been working on this series for two years, and I'll have a church-wide email that's going to come to you in the next 24 hours, uh, giving you some of this content so you can follow along throughout the year. I've also been working on this for two years because it is an election season, and even though we're not going to talk about election and politics for 52 weeks this year, it is a year with so many distractions that are coming at us, so many things asking for our allegiance, maybe getting us on track, maybe even falling into some of the lies like this year, like God is on the line or the church is on the line, like God's gonna go on forever. So what better way for us to combat all the voices that come at us in the world than to root and center ourselves as a church in the story of Jesus. And as all the gospels end, they end by giving people a sense of purpose. Like, there is a mission for you, there is a purpose for you. I don't know how, uh, how many of you remember the, the book, The Purpose Driven Life, by Rick Warren. It came out way back in the 1900s, right? <laughs> way back in the 1990s. And, and the, the way Rick wrote this book, how many of you have read The Purpose Driven Life? A number of you? 
The way Rick, in the very beginning of this book, Rick Warren says, here's how you're to read this book, is you do not read it in one setting. You read it over 40 days. So the instructions are, don't sit down and just read it. Like, you know, you don't, don't just go to the beach and you read Purpose Driven Life. Over 40 days, you need to read it in a slow way, almost like a devotional book, and to, to discover purpose. I broke that rule back in, when I first started preaching here. I, that book had been on my shelf for years, and one day I was about to preach a sermon on purpose, so I thought, what is this book all about? This is a book that has sold like 50, 60, 70 million copies. Rick Warren made so much money off the purpose-driven life that for a time in his life, he and his wife reverse tithed. They gave away 90, they lived on 10. Now the 10 they lived on was a lot of 10, all right? But to sell that many copies doesn't just tell you about the content of the book, it tells you about people who are hungering for purpose. So I sat down and one day I read it, like 350 pages. I just wanted to see, like, what's the thing about this book? That millions and millions of people would read it, so, so I did it. Then I preached a sermon here on a Sunday on, on the power of purpose. And then I was invited to do a discipleship weekend in Florida. So I went to do this weekend in Florida where they wanted me to do uh, four, sermon, four messages based on the sermon they heard me preach here on purpose. And the way they split it up is Friday night was going to be an all-women's group. So my first message was all-women. Saturday, I'd have all the men. Then a combined uh, class Sunday morning and worship on Sunday morning. So I was early 30s. There's a group of women. I'm talking about the power of purpose. I asked the women there, about 100 women were there. I, missed, I said, how many of you have read The Purpose Driven Life? About half of them raised their hand. And then I told them what I just told you, that that book, I hadn't read it in years, and I read it in one sitting. And I told them, I said, and that book for seven years had just been sitting on my shelf. But when I said it, a word that rhymes with sitting came out. Instead of what I meant to say, so they heard me say something different than sitting on a shelf. In which my first thought was, God is looking at me saying, you're going to kiss your mama with that mouth? You know, like, and then I thought maybe they didn't hear me say it. But the fact that they were like, I mean, like, oh, laughter was breaking out all over the room. And this one sweet lady stood up in the middle of the room and she looked at me and she said, we hate when our books do that too. <laughs> And the rest of the weekend, I mean, it was like this little joke we would have. And the, there was the only man in the place was running sound that day. And to this day, when I see him at conferences, he's like, I still have that tape. I'm holding it over your head. Your little preacher blooper is going to come out at some point. And he gave us the way throughout the weekend to talk. Like, as we pursue purpose, there are these distractions in life. As we pursue purpose, there are these roadblocks. We make mistakes, yet we keep, we keep pursuing purpose. I remember uh, when I sat down to read that book, The Purpose Driven Life. This is, I, I like Rick Warren. This is not a knock on Rick Warren at all. As I read it, one thing that kind of surprised me is like there wasn't a lot of novel ideas in the book. It wasn't like he's unpacking things that nobody has ever heard. It was a book full of reminders of who God is. Like really simple things about the Christian faith. And the book begins. If you open up, like before, I think you, before you even get to the introduction, he has this one paragraph, and here's what he says in the book. He says, if you read this book, you will find purpose in your life. It was a promise. 
And who in our culture today wouldn't read that and say, I want a little bit of that. If you read this, you will find purpose. Look, there are some things going on in your life right now that you, like I have nothing to offer you. I mean, if you are in need of uh, help with your taxes over the next couple of months, or maybe you file extensions for the next year, I'm not the person who's going to help you. I mean, if you're in need of lesson plans for your second grade class at school, I'm, I'm probably not the person to help you out. If you're in need of uh, advice from a lawyer, I, I'm not the person for you. You need, a, you need help, like on a car, I can change a tire. There are thousands of people you should call before you call me. But if you want to find greater purpose in your life when it comes to Christ and a deeper prayer life or ways to read the Bible with greater meaning or ways to try to align your life with what Jesus wants for your life, I can help, I can help you find purpose in your life. And my email is jross at sycamoreview.org. And if there are ways I can help you in your walk with Christ, I would love nothing more than to talk with you. Now, if you don't like anything I've said in this message and you want to email me, my email address is jim.hinkle at sycamoreview.org. But if you need help in, in, in your walk with faith uh, to find some purpose, I, I can help you. I was at a conference this past week. I heard a woman named Amy speak, and Amy's a, she's a good friend of mine. Amy teaches. She's a professor at Abilene Christian University. And she told a story about teaching her incoming freshmen and the freshman at ACU, the, first, the, the fall semester, your first semester, you take a class called The Life and Teachings of Jesus. It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And she said the first day of her class, she asked them a question. What does Jesus expect from you? And she was shocked that the majority of kids in that room, these 18, 19-year-olds, their response was nothing. What does Jesus expect from you? Their response was nothing. And though she was a little surprised... She had been in church, she has been in church her entire life, and she's seen a number of Christians who, the, kind of the way they live is like, Jesus doesn't expect anything from me. Just don't mess up real bad, like go to church, say a prayer before you eat, and, and Jesus doesn't expect much, much more. So instead in that moment of trying to help them, like change their answer, she decided, hey, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna teach Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to these students, and I'm gonna ask them again at the end of the semester, what does Jesus expect from you? So it wasn't a question she was going to ask every single class. So she went through the whole semester, taught them about Jesus. And the very last day of class, she said, I want to return to a question I asked you the first day of class. What does Jesus expect from you? And from one of the boys in the class, who she did not expect something like this from, he said, everything. In which another girl responded with the same way, everything. And she elaborated on everything. And is that not the journey for us? Like to know that to move from Jesus expecting nothing from you to, to knowing Jesus expects everything from you. Not because Jesus wants to control you like a puppeteer, but because Jesus wants to permeate the world with the love of God and Jesus wants to do it through you. I was on a plane this past week and I had two encounters with people that reflects, I think, the majority of our culture. Now, I've noticed, and I'm not on a plane all the time, maybe once a month or so, I'm on a plane. And I've realized that there's no other place for me that I am next to a stranger for one to four hours than when I'm on an airplane. 
Like I'm never leg to leg, shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow to people in restaurants or grocery stores, but on an airplane, I'm next to people for a long time, people I know nothing about. And even in a world of uh, AirPods and, and earbuds and things like that, like there's still sometimes connection. So I got on a flight Wednesday morning at five o'clock in the morning, which when I book these flights, it's always a great idea when I book them. And then like a day out, I'm like, what was I thinking? So I'm sitting there and this guy comes on the, the plane at five o'clock and he's one of those dudes that, I mean, just as loud as could be walking through first class, saying hi to everybody, like woke. He's just He's just, he's looking for, a, he's just one big piece of ready to talk, you know what I'm saying? And some of you are like, you're that way, that's who you are, right? So, and when this happens on an airplane, you're thinking, oh God, please don't let this be the person who sits by me. Send them, send them to the back, and sure enough, he's, he's in the middle seat right by me. And he's chatty to start off, man, he's confident. And then they turned the lights down because it was such an early flight, and he got quiet. And he had his phone out, and I could tell he had his notes open on his phone, but I, I don't like to like, look at devices to read what people are reading next to me. But there was this one moment we're sitting next to each other, and his phone was on like the outside of his leg like this, facing me. And even though I wasn't like trying to read what was on his phone, I just... I looked at it, and when I did, and I don't know if some of you get this, like sometimes my mind takes these, these photographs where I don't read line for line, but I can, just like my mind takes a picture. It's like I could see a whole paragraph. So even though I just glanced, I could see a whole paragraph, and I will never forget what I saw in the notes on his phone. Word for word, I'll never forget it. It said this. We both want peace and happiness in our lives. And I never thought divorce would be how our relationship would end. And I glanced away. I didn't want to read the rest. And I looked up and I could see tears in his eyes. And then I'm wrestling in my spirit, do I say something or not? Like, is he about to divorce his wife over text messaging? And then I was like, no, it's probably a guy just like trying to put together words or communication or... I didn't know, and I, I didn't know, do I say something? I'm a, I'm a, do I say, like, dude, I was just reading your phone. I, I see there's hurt in your life. I'm a minister. Like, you, you want to chat about it? Do we need to pray? And I, I didn't say anything to him, and I don't feel conviction or guilt about that. This, I, I, the flight was almost over. I, I've, I've been praying for this man. But just uh, as I was sitting on that plane writing a sermon on purpose, thinking about this man next to me going through relational pain and brokenness, knowing how many people I've walked with who have been through a similar journey, who, are now, who, who will now be on a journey in their own life of trying to reach for and find purpose through brokenness. That was one person I sat next to. And then I sat next to a young woman. And we were on this plane for an hour and 45 minutes, 105 minutes. And I am not exaggerating this at all. For 105 minutes, she did nothing but take selfie after selfie after selfie. She did not stop to get a drink. She did not stop to get a snack. She, she didn't stop to get $200 passing go. Like the, all she did for 105 minutes is take selfies, probably not even hundreds, probably thousands of them. She would throw the hair over her left ear and take selfies, throw it over her right ear, take selfies, turn the phone to the left, turn the phone to the right. At one point, I was like, I, I'm going to get in the pictures with her. I'm going <laughs> to, hey, 
I'm, I'm going to get in. Hey, I mean, you're taking so many. Can I just jump? Can I slide in here with you? All right? I thought that would be a little creepy. Then I began to like, pray. God, is it okay for me to spill water on her? Because this was annoying me. I glanced at her phone. And I didn't glance at her phone to see the selfies. I glanced because I wanted to see how much battery life was on her phone. Hey, God, can you take this from 39 and just kill the phone? All right, I'm tired of seeing selfies. I never talked to her about the selfies, and, and I know this sounds so judgy, because it is. I was like the self-obsession in our culture with self-image, whether we like ourselves or we don't. It can make people reach for purpose in places they cannot find it. And here are two people I sat next to, one going through all kinds of relational pain and disappointment, and another who is self-obsessed, at least on an airplane for 105 minutes, with self-image. And we could li li live a year that we pay for and reach for purpose in places that will never satisfy. All while knowing Jesus is the only purpose that can sustain us for all of life and eternity. So I'm gonna leave you with this question. What is more important in your life? That Jesus chose you or that you choose Jesus? And the answer is they're both pretty important. When it comes to salvation in God, salvation through Jesus, it is 100% God's activity in your life. This isn't God does 50% and you meet him halfway. Salvation is given to us. It is a gift, and it is Jesus' work, and we just respond to it. But I do believe that when it comes to growth and maturity and transformation, we got to give God some, we got to give him some room. We got to give him something to play with. We've got to create a little bit of room. We've got to step. We've got to reach. We, we, we've got to do, do a little bit of something, and I'm not saying this is 50-50 or 90-10 or 80-20. I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying when it comes to any form of growth or finding purpose in your life, you've got to give God a little bit to work with. You've you got to reach for God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, and this is not on the screen, but Ephesians 1, verse 4 says this, God chose us. God chose us through Christ in the very beginning to be holy and blameless. Before you were even conceived, before God even created the world, he chose us in and through Jesus to be holy and blameless. You have, you've been chosen. God knows you from birth, from conception. God has known you. And this week, you may go into grocery stores, and there is not a person in that place who may know anything about you. You may go into restaurants, and hardly anybody in that place will know anything about you. You may feel like you work in places, or you live in places where the people you were around don't know anything about you. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, God knows you. God knows the best moments in your life, and God knows the worst moments in your life. And God keeps choosing you anyway. And this morning, as we take the bread and the cup, there are six tables around this room. You're invited to go to these tables to take the bread and the cup. I want you to remember, in this moment, Jesus chose you. He chose you through all the things we have done. He chose you. And today, as we take the bread and the cup, will we choose Jesus?
Will you choose Christ? Maybe will you choose him for the very first time in your life? If so, this room's going to be surrounded with Randy Frederick in the back. I know Shelly Eaton and Laura Moore will be on the sides. Uh, Terry Miller, one of our shepherds, will be up here to my right. I'll be to the left. If you have never chosen Christ, will you take one of us, grab one of us, let us pray with you, talk with you about what it means to choose Jesus, what it means that you were chosen by Christ? And if this is a year or a day that you need to choose Jesus in some deeper ways, Give us a chance to pray with you and for you. Will you bow your heads, close your eyes? And my prayer, God, for this church in 2024, I pray for your favor. I pray, God, for courage. I pray that you, um, as you initiate deeper relationship with us, that you will peel off some of the layers of your character to reveal more of yourself to us. For people who maybe it is so hard for them to hear that they are known or that they have been chosen, that you will, that you will make a way through uh, the ways they hear, the way they take inf- information, just that they will see how, how good you are, that you know us, you have chosen us. And God, I pray that with whatever energy we have right now in life, that we will reach for you, fall for you. And God, if we are too weak to reach, that we will know how you are reaching for us. Jesus, through the bread and the cup, through your obedience all the way to death, for the life you live now as our mediator, as the one who still pursues us. God, we, we, Jesus, we give you thanks. And in this moment, we take the bread and the cup, and we just want you to know, Jesus, we choose you. We're coming for you this year, and we can't wait to see all that you're going to do. It's through Christ we pray, and the church said, amen. Mm-hmm.